Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host, and in this episode, we explore the founding of Mitchellville, the first freedmen's community in the United States established right here on Hilton Head Island as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Rich Thomas is back with us today to share with us one of his passions, which is the history of Mitchellville. Rich is the author of Backwater Frontier, Buford County, South Carolina at the forefront of American history. And he is also the owner of Hilton Head History Tours right here on Hilton Head Island. Rich, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jay. It's really great to be back. I appreciate your having me. Juneteenth was officially established as a federal holiday in June of 2021. The holiday recognizes the emancipation of the enslaved in the state of Texas. Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation on June 1st, 1863, but because of the remote location, it took an additional two years for Union troops and General Gordon Granger to enforce the proclamation in Texas. While this moment officially enforced the end of slavery in the United States, what many do not realize is that the start of the emancipation process began right here on Hilton Head Island, even before Lincoln's proclamation and continued with the establishment of Mitchellville. Rich, briefly share with us why the Union troops were stationed here on Hilton Head and what was their relationship like with the local community? Sure, Jay. Um, When the war started, uh, there was no definitive plan for what was going to be done with the opposition to the South's independence. And a strategy, a military strategy, had been forwarded by a guy named... uh, Winfield Scott, who was a general, a hero of the Mexican-American Wars, and he he put forth something that was later called the Anaconda Plan, which meant encircle the Confederacy, uh, keep any uh, goods and munitions from reaching it, keep it from realizing any revenue through exports, and essentially over time the force uh, the South would be forced to capitulate. And while the land strategy, the land forces strategy for that was pretty direct and pretty simple, we invade southern capitals, we occupy them, and we control command and communication from those centers. But the naval part of the strategy, which really related to the Atlantic coast, the Gulf Coast, and the Mississippi River, um, was not defined. And so In May of 1861, Lincoln convenes a naval board, planning board, and at the head of the board is a guy named Samuel Francis DuPont. Uh, DuPont was actually the favorite nephew of the gunpowder manufacturing factory um, owner, um, E.I. DuPont, uh, who was in Delaware. And uh, DuPont and the board recommended uh, a blockading squadron be formed in four different parts. Um, And those four parts of that squadron would control and blockade all the Confederate ports from Virginia to Texas. And that was at the very beginning of hostilities and essentially the Navy only had 37 ships in total. They figured it would take 250,000 
to pull that off, that blockade off. And so uh, production was ramped up. They commandeered um, paddle wheel steamers, put cannons on their decks, and considered them as gunboats. The South Atlantic Blockading Squadron was one of the four, and DuPont was put in its command. The first thing that DuPont had to do was choose the place that he would establish a base of operations along the southeast coast from which the ships in his squadron could refuel and carry out their mission. And eventually they decided uh, that it would be the Port Royal Sound that they would invade. And the land forces were brought in to plan an amphibious operation against the Confederate forts that controlled the entrance to the harbor. And Hilton Head became the place that was designated that would be the headquarters or what was going to be called the Federal Military Department of the South. And the Department of the South was essentially that military entity that controlled all of the operations that would ensue in the states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina for the remainder of the war. Well, what what ended up happening was the fleet came south. Uh, They encountered a hurricane. It dispersed the fleet. They started assembling piecemeal off the mouth of Port Royal Sound. And when they were beginning to assemble all of the landowners, the slave owners in the Port Royal Sound area, all the white uh, landowners and slave owners, ended up uh, putting their belongings on wagons and taking as many of their household slaves as they felt they could um, control and headed out for parts in the interior. Many of them owned property either in Alabama or Tennessee or Georgia uh, or in the interior of South Carolina. And this was called the Great Skedaddle by all the slaves who were left behind. Well, all of those people expected that the Confederate troops were going to reclaim their property pretty quickly, but that never did happen. And the Union occupied and controlled the area really from Edisto Island all the way south to the mouth of the Savannah River by April of 1862. And that was that area was referred to, the entire area was referred to as Port Royal. The post office that was established at the Hilton Head headquarters was called the Port Royal Post Office. The postmark was Port Royal, South Carolina. But that applied not just to Hilton Head Island, but the entire area. And that's why the, the, the federal forces were here. And from the time that they came ashore, they began setting up an encampment. Uh, that encampment developed into a small city. When the sounds of the Battle of Port Royal Sound, which happened on November 7th of 1861, were heard by the slaves on the plantations in the Port Royal area, They knew that the Lincoln soldiers had arrived to liberate them, and many of them fled the plantations where they had been abandoned and came to the military installations being established around Port Royal Sound, Hilton Head being one of them, and probably the most numerous contingent of slaves uh, came to Port Royal, uh, came to Hilton Head initially, although quite a number assembled around Beaufort a bit later on. And almost 20,000 or approximately 20,000 former slaves were abandoned. And when the Union comes in, they have the supplies. um, They have the the stores to accomplish their mission. But that was planned for about 13,000 men. 
and the first commander of the Department of the South was a guy named Thomas West Sherman, who has no known relationship to William Tecumseh Sherman. And in March of 1862, just before he was relieved of his command, General Sherman estimated that there were upwards of 8,500 former slaves seeking refuge on Hilton Head Island. Well, that put a tremendous burden on the supplies that were available. Many of the former slaves, because there were not enough tents to house them all, uh, ended up sleeping under trees in the open. And relationships between the soldiers and the former slaves living in close proximity to the forts, some of them initially were inside the walls of the fortifications, got uh, fairly strained fairly quickly. And the humanitarian crisis started to develop. And in 1862, early in 1862, General David Hunter is set in, sent in as the, the next commander of the Department of the South. And one of his tasks is to somehow resolve the situation. Tell us exactly who General David Hunter was and what is the significance of April 1862? So the, I'll take the second part first, <laughs> if you don't mind. April 1862 really was the beginning of military operations launched from the Hilton Head headquarters. And the first one of those of any significance was the attack, the siege, and the bombardment of Fort Pulaski at the mouth of the Savannah River. Obviously, the mission there was to occupy control Fort Pulaski and shut off the Savannah River to Confederate boats for access. Well, when that happened, General Hunter emancipated all of the slaves on Cockspur Island and in the surrounding area, Cockspur Island being the body of land that Fort Pulaski is located on. Shortly after he did that, he was very concerned about the possibility of Confederate counterattacks. Like many of his contemporary uh, generals in the federal armies, uh, Hunter overestimated the strength of the competition. And so he felt bound to be able to access the new source of potential recruits, and that was the recently liberated former slaves from the Port Royal area. So in early April of 1862, he issues an order to his command in Hilton Head to assemble all able-bodied blacks and begin their enlistment in the army as recruits. And keep in mind at the time, it's illegal to arm blacks anywhere in the United States. Um, not until the Emancipation Proclamation did it really become fully legal to arm blacks. But Hunter just kind of goes ahead. He believes that in order to give him the authority to do that, on April 25th, he will issue an order declaring martial law in the states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina because he believes that gives him the power and the authority under military law to take any captured Confederate property and use it in any way he deems fit for the war effort. And obviously the Confederates considered their slaves property, and so by essentially taking on that categorization – gives Hunter the ability and the authority to use that property in any way he fits, which is as armed troops. So he begins that process at the end of April, and then I think it's May 9th, he issues General Order Number 11, 
which formally emancipates all of the slaves in the states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Well, Hunter's an interesting character, and he's got a fascinating history in and of himself, Jay. Just a, a short short version of the story. Um, he ends up being a lieutenant out at uh, a fort in Dearborn, Michigan, on the Dearborn River. And he's heading up the guard detail, and across the river, a lone horseback rider wearing a federal uniform is sighted, and that across the river is Indian territory. And they, he takes a canoe with about six men, and they row across the river to encounter this lone federal rider. And it turns out to be none other than First Lieutenant Jefferson Davis on a patrol mission. And so he gets Davis and ends up bringing him back across the river, lying down in the bottom of the canoe as they cross the Dearborn because a storm had come up. Gets back to the fort, spends time with Davis there. Davis makes it back to his command. Uh, and later on, obviously, you know, he becomes the president of the Confederacy. So Hunter will go on from Fort Dearborn out to Kansas. He'll become a paymaster for the Army there. He's an ardent abolitionist. And when Lincoln is running as a candidate for president, Hunter initiates a correspondence relationship with Lincoln uh, in support of his candidacy and in support of the abolition of slavery, obviously. And they form quite a quite a strong relationship. And when Lincoln is elected, he actually invites Hunter to accompany him on the train ride from Springfield to Washington, D.C. And at a train stop in uh, Buffalo, New York, Hunter is helping to keep the crowd from pressuring Lincoln too closely. And he ends up dislocating his shoulder in that process. And when they get to the White House, Lincoln will ask Hunter to stay on at the White House as the head of the White House Guard. And so Hunter and about 150 men will sleep in the west wing of the White House until they get bunking requirements satisfied for them there. And then he ends up forming relationships over his time as the head of the Guard at the White House with all of Lincoln's cabinet. Um, high-ranking politicians. And he's an ambitious guy. He, he probably has political aspirations after the war, but he certainly has political ambitions. And so he'll, uh, he'll go on from that uh, to a field assignment in Virginia. He's wounded. And I can't remember which battle he's wounded in, but he's wounded somewhat severely. And then he goes through a period of recuperation. And he's very, very eager at this time to get back into the field out of Washington, D.C. And about that same time, the Lincoln administration is becoming dissatisfied with Sherman's command in the Department of the South. And they will relieve Sherman and appoint Hunter to fill his post. So Hunter comes here knowing Lincoln well and all this other stuff. And from the very beginning, it's definite that Hunter had... Uh, ambitions to free the slaves in the territory that he commanded. So what are the odds that a key figure in emancipating the slaves meets the future president of the Confederacy in Michigan, in Indian territory? I mean, history is such a strange thing to have that coincidence happen. It sure is. And, and they go from being close friends in that beginning to bitter avowed enemies, not so much Hunter to Davis, although Davis is his military enemy for sure, but Davis to Hunter. 
And it's later on after Hunter issues the order to emancipate general order number 11 to emancipate the slaves in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, Davis will issue an order that Hunter is to be shot on sight as an enemy of the Confederacy and anybody who would arm slaves against their former masters is an enemy of the country. So he goes from being a friend to someone who orders Hunter's execution on sight if uh, he were to be uh, cited. But after Hunter issues that order, Jay, um, he, he he said nothing about it beforehand uh, up the uh, up the chain of command. Um, it takes about 10 days or so for Lincoln to hear about this. Um, Hilton Head is remote. Uh, there was no proactive communication going forward by Hunter. And so by the time somebody relays it to someone else and it reaches the ears of the administration, it's almost 10 days later. Well, that's about the time when Lincoln is becoming increasingly concerned about the position of the slave owners in the border states. And he is very uh, worried that the example Hunter has set is going to give a signal to the slave owners in the border states that that's going to be the fate of their property, that they're going to be liberated and armed against them uh, if, in fact, the same thing is done in the border states as done in the South. So Lincoln will rescind the order. He doesn't fire Hunter at that point, but it's one of the first things that kind of begins to develop a chink in Hunter's armor. And over the next several months, Hunter's uh, command in South Carolina will be called into question for a number of a number of different things and really too voluminous to go into um, now. But Hunter will be relieved of his command in late August 1862, and that will open the door for General Ormsby McKnight Mitchell to be appointed as the third commander of the Department of the South. So, Rich, what happened to General Hunter after he left Hilton Head? Hunter is going to be assigned uh, back in in the north. He'll end up uh, being the commanding general uh, of a division that will meet part of Stonewall Jackson's uh, campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, he'll defeat a guy named William Jones, Grumble Jones, at the Battle of Piedmont in that campaign. He'll go on to wreak havoc on Washington College in, in Lexington, Virginia, which later becomes Washington and Lee. And Hunter's campaign in the Valley comes to, the, comes to its end after he's defeated at Lynchburg. And he will now retreat across the Allegheny Mountains into West Virginia, taking his army out of the war altogether for a couple of weeks. That's kind of a, a black mark, another black mark on his career, his failure there and failure to stem the tide of the Confederate advance to the Shenandoah Valley. Sheridan will get placed in command of Hunter, and uh, he'll go on to uh, finish his career in the military. He actually later serves in the honor guard at the funeral of Lincoln and accompanies Lincoln's body back to Springfield. And after the war, he becomes the president of the commission trying the conspirators in Lincoln's assassination from May 8th to July 15th in 1865. And he'll retire from the army the following year. As he is continuing his career in the North, General Ormsby Mitchell arrives on Hilton Head. Do you know why he was selected to come here and what happened after he arrived in the Port Royal area? Well, those are two real different questions. Um, why he was selected to come here. Um, Mitchell's story is one of the most fascinating I've ever come into contact with in the Civil War. But he he 
He's born in Kentucky about two months after Abraham Lincoln, not far from where Lincoln was born. Uh, his father, a, a circuit judge, will die on one of his circuits, and his mother then raises Mitchell as an only child. Uh, two years later, she'll march him up to western, southwestern Ohio, and they end up being near Oxford, Ohio. Mitchell's a prodigy in mathematics. He has a very powerful interest in astronomy and the stars. Uh, he'll work uh, jobs after school to earn money to pay the library at um, Oxford College, which later becomes Miami University. Pay the librarian at Oxford College to let him read the astronomy texts in that library. He'll apply to West Point for an appointment at age 14 and is accepted, the youngest ever accepted as an appointee to West Point. And the following fall, he walks from Oxford, Ohio to the Hudson River Valley to attend classes at West Point. Graduates at the top of his class, in the top of his class, I should say, four years later in the same class as Robert E. Lee and General Joseph Johnston, both very famous Confederate generals. And Mitchell will go on and become a uh, – he'll become a lieutenant in the engineering corps. He ends up having a girlfriend who he left behind back in Oxford that he wants to marry. He'll resign his commission in the military and head back to Oxford, marries his girlfriend, becomes a professor of astronomy and mathematics at Cincinnati College, which later becomes the University of Cincinnati. And he also decides that while he's a professor there, he needs to uh, study the law. So he reads the reads the law and becomes an attorney while he is there and is hired by the Miami Valley Railroad uh, as their chief engineer in its startup phase. Not the engineer to drive the trains, but the one to lay out the railroad. And um, then the war breaks out. Uh, Mitchell volunteers immediately and is appointed a brigadier general of volunteers in the Army of the Cumberland. Uh, they head out to Nashville in the first battle of Nashville, are in the lead division of that army. And after an hour and a half artillery bombardment, Mitchell is leading the division into Nashville to occupy it. And as he begins his uh, movement, he gives orders to his commanders to maneuver in such a fashion that the commander of the Nashville defenses thinks he's about to be encircled and so gives the order to evacuate the defenses of Nashville. And Mitchell and his brigade at the head of that division will march into Nashville, occupy the city without a shot being fired. So he's promoted because of that. And he is now put in charge of a division, a division commander, and he's elevated to the rank of major general. And he'll lead his division down to Huntsville, Alabama. And at the Battle of Huntsville, they encounter a city with defenses that are very similar to those that were in the, the Japanese-held islands in the Pacific in World War II. I mean, they're really well dug in. And the commander of Huntsville is a Confederate general named Earl Van Dorn. Van Dorn is known as a very uh, shrewd tactical commander in the field. Mitchell, now in command of five times as many men as he had at the Battle of Nashville, brings his brigade commanders together and gives orders for them to maneuver in a fashion similar to that of Nashville. And Van Dorn 
just like the commander in Nashville is convinced that he's going to be encircled and enveloped and captured. And he gives the order to his men to evacuate these incredibly solid defenses of Huntsville. And this time, without even a cannon shot being fired, Mitchell and his division walk in, take possession of the city of Huntsville, Alabama. So what do you think the Army does with a brilliant field tactician? They give him a desk job back in Washington. So they bring him back to Washington, make him the head of a strategy board, strategy commission. And Mitchell hates it. Uh, He immediately starts lobbying with people, any politicians and cabinet members he can get his hands on, asking for a field command. During this time, he also plans what later gets known to be the great locomotive chase. And it was basically a scheme to disrupt the Confederate transportation of military materiel between the city of Chattanooga and the city of Atlanta. And and Chattanooga at the time was a very important manufacturing hub for the Confederacy. He'll end up finally getting his wish when Hunter is being relieved of his command and he's appointed to command the Department of the South. After his arrival, um, when he gets here, uh, he spends the first week in the Port Royal area going around and visiting all the encampments in the Port Royal Sound area. And he's really trying to get his finger on the pulse and just feel out what's happening. And at the end of the week, he'll write a letter to the Secretary of War, Stanton, that he's very concerned about the morale of the men and the toxic climate that has developed between the soldiers and the slaves and knows that something has to be done about it. So September 15th, this would make it approximately September 22nd, 23rd. He actually goes to the communications center on Hilton Head for the Union. And that happened to be the Widow's Walk area of the Pope Plantation home on Coggins Point. That house had been used by the Confederates as a signal tower and a watchtower before the Union occupied Hilton Head, and the Union used it for the same thing. But they also ended up building a turret that was about 15 feet higher than the Widow's Walk roof, And that was their command post, their signal tower, and their watchtower. And Mitchellville goes up to the top of that watchtower after the week he spent going around the sound to get a view of his domain, his new domain, which is the island almost devoid of trees because all the trees in that area would have been cleared for plantation fields. He can also see very clearly across the Port Royal Sound. And he looks north across the the marsh at uh, Fishhall Creek, And he sees the wide open cotton fields of the former Confederate commander, Thomas Fenwick Drayton. And Drayton was the commander of all the troops between the Cumbie River and the Savannah River, about 3,000 total, of which about 1,400 were stationed at Fort Walker here on Hilton Head and Fort Beauregard over on Bay Point. Those were the two forts guarding the entrance to Port Royal Sound. He was in command at the Fort Walker location in today's Port Royal Plantation when the battle happens on November 7th of 1861. Mitchell looks at the former Drayton Plantation land and says, what a perfect place to build a village for these people. And so he immediately begins conceptualizing that village. And he actually lays out a plat for the town with, you know, neat streets in parallel, a perpendicular street grid pattern, for instance. 
Um, he recommends uh, a structure for a town government to be elected by the residents, and he recommends rules and regulations to be enacted into law by a vote of the residents. And I'll go so far as to recommend a law for the compulsory education of children age 5 to 16. And um, he'll do all of that, and then he has to persuade people that it's a good idea. He starts with his general staff officers, and they are quick to come on board because anything that will move the slaves further from the encampment, the main encampment, is a good thing for them. And then he goes to the leaders of the black community one of whom is the Reverend Abram Murchison, who is the pastor of the First African Baptist Church, which had begun services earlier that year in the outdoors while the church is being completed. And he works with Murchison, um, trying to help him understand why living apart from the fort will be a good idea. He talks to him about the fact that there will be land that they will own, um, that they will be governing themselves with their own government, and that it's a chance to prove to the people of the North um, that, in fact, formerly enslaved people can in fact, can thrive and self-govern in, in freedom. And um, Murchison and the other leaders of the community get on board, and Murchison invites Mitchell to address the congregation of the First African Baptist Church at the first Sunday services held in the finished building. And Mitchell will talk to the people about a new day that's dawning, a new time that's coming, uh, the fact that they have a challenge before them, but will be able to prove to the rest of the people in the country that, in fact, they can live as productive citizens in a free white society at the time. And the people of the community start getting behind Mitchell's idea. Mitchell will leave that session uh, at the church. The next day, he writes a letter to the Secretary of the Treasury and tells him that he has plans to build a town for the contrabands on Hilton Head and that he'll need money to do that. And then without waiting for a response, Mitchell will issue an order to the sawmills on the island, I think there were nine of them at the time, to start producing lumber for the village. And after all of that's done, it's now right around October 20th or so, and Mitchell will, Mitchell will become ill, um, takes a fever. Uh, that gets worse. He's taken to the officer's hospital over in Beaufort. And Mitchell will die in that officer's hospital of yellow fever on October 30th, 1862, 45 days after he arrived on Hilton Head Island. And Mitchellville will go on um, to be built um, in October. The first homes are completed by the end of October, 1862. There are ultimately there are three crews of 50 men. Uh, separated into five distinct task groups, each with a separate part of what goes into building one of the homes in Mitchellville. And they'll be building houses at the rate of 15 to 20 a month by the end of 1862. Mitchellville will be incorporated after emancipation in 1863, and later that year will be named in honor of General Mitchell, the man who conceived it and helped the initial implementation of the plans. 
And Mitchellville will go on during the war to grow as a community so that in 1865, uh, there are over 400 homes housing nearly 3,000 residents with a church, a couple of schools, three general stores. And that community will be comprised primarily of now free blacks under the Emancipation Proclamation who are working for the federal government at the main encampment across Fishall Creek Marsh. Can you talk a little bit about the irony and the fact that the secession tree where all this started over in Beaufort leads to the first freedmen's community not, what, 20 miles away on Hilton Head Island? Well, it is definitely ironic, <laughs> but it's 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 purposeful in there. It, it's interesting, Jay, because uh, so the, the secession oak is actually in, um, in Bluffton, uh, and the 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 movement that began around the time of nullification and the nullification crisis in 1833 was called the Bluffton Movement. And what that was was a group of area planters, about 400 of them, who, because of the federal tariffs that were passed in 1828 and then in 1832, became very stringent in their desire to have South Carolina vote to nullify those federal laws with respect to South Carolinians. And that began the entire discussion around who had sovereignty. Was it the federal government or was it the state government that would have sovereignty in that situation? That drove the state's rights movement. And the state's rights movement ultimately was the rationalization, really, that was used to create the secessionist movement, which ended up drafting the Articles of Secession and causing the South Carolina legislature to vote to secede in December of 1860 after Lincoln was elected uh, president. Um, And those Articles of Secession were drafted mainly in Beaufort and in Bluffton. So... In the minds of the people of the North, because of the press that had been generated about the states' rights movement and secession and the nullification crisis earlier and all of that, Beaufort County, South Carolina, was viewed as the epicenter of secession. It was also viewed as the heartland of slavery because of its location right in between the slave markets of Charleston and Savannah. And so when the planning was taking place for the invasion of a point along the southeast coast. The Port Royal Sound was pinpointed because not only is it the second largest and second deepest natural harbor on the east coast, but it was also held in the minds of the people of the north and by Abraham Lincoln personally to be the epicenter of secession in the heartland of slavery. And Lincoln himself had a role in the selection of the Port Royal Sound as the site for that invasion. And then the fact that you would have a military base of operations um, growing up on the beachhead that you established in enemy territory is just kind of the way things go. But yeah, definitely ironic, but very purposeful on the part of the Union, because what Lincoln wanted to do was to deal the South 
right at the time of the autumn harvest to deprive them of any opportunity to realize income from the sale of Sea Island cotton and rice um, was to deal the South a really powerful psychological blow by going in and occupying territory in that heartland of their economy. As we've discovered through a lot of the historical discussions we've had in these podcasts, timing is everything. And to hit them financially <laughs> right before harvest time is is kind of a, a sheer act of, of genius. As the Civil War came to a close and Union troops began to leave, what happened to the, the town? Well, so at the end of the war, most of the troops that are stationed on Hilton Head are mustered out of the service. So this is, you know, April 1865, May 1865. And uh, about 3,500 were retained in the service here on Hilton Head to be the martial law forces for the implementation of Reconstruction in the states of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. And as long as those troops were here, there were jobs for the people of Mitchellville. And the people in Mitchellville uh, lived on a quarter of an acre land. Uh, they had their own house that sat on that acre. The houses were about 20 by 20 in dimension. They also had usually had small gardens in which they grew some crops and some maybe tobacco or whatever they wanted to supplement what they were able to get from the commissary at the main camp across the marsh. And when that disappears, when that commissary disappears and those Union troops are no longer there and they have no pay through which to purchase things, they can't really sustain their families on the crops that they can grow on a quarter of an acre. So what they end up doing is form uh, forming eight kinship-based groups. And those kinship groups then pool their resources because most of those families were able to save something from the years that they were working for the federal government during the occupation of the island. And with those pooled resources, they purchased uh tracts of land, larger tracts of land on different parts of Hilton Head Island. And on those parcels of land, they not only established their communities, they dismantled their houses in Mitchellville, in most cases, and moved them, you know, to those new locations. But they also established a cooperative farming effort in the communities. And the cooperative farms were big enough that they could generate plenty of produce to feed the families that lived in that area. And over time, they actually started generating a surplus. And that surplus was then taken to the market in Savannah. And so an income stream developed for the island based on the produce that was uh, exported to Savannah and sold in the markets. What is interesting to me as I've you know studied it a little bit more is that those eight kinship groups tended to purchase land in areas where their ancestors had been enslaved. And most of those areas held slave cemeteries. And those same areas and those slave cemeteries now comprise those 14 Native Islander cemeteries, or many of those 14 Native Islander cemeteries are those slave cemeteries on land where people who were interred there had been enslaved and those same areas today are now recognized as our historic Gullah neighborhoods for the most part. So that's what happens to Mitchellville at the end of the war. One kinship group actually stays in the Mitchellville area and purchases land there, and that's a man named March Gardner. And they continue to live on that land 
uh, really up until the Great Sea Island Hurricane of 1893, which pretty much ended the occupation of of those uh, of those parts. Yeah, you you've mentioned the land, uh, you know, them purchasing land and, and distribution from uh, General Mitchell, and but there were a lot of land disputes over these years from the time that this was established, even especially after Lincoln was assassinated. Can you share with us what happened with these disputes and who exactly were the Draytons and what was their involvement? Okay, so Thomas Drayton, the commander of the Confederate forces south of the Cumbia River and north of the Savannah River, commander of Fort Walker on Hilton Head, at the time of the Battle of Port Royal Sound, was a member of the Drayton family. Draytons were a large family of attorneys, merchants from Charleston who became landowners in the southern part of, gosh, really at that time, the province of Carolina and the colony of South Carolina before it became a state following the, the, the war, the Revolutionary War. And the Draytons had purchased property all around. The father of Thomas Drayton um, was also Thomas Drayton, uh, had two sons, Percival and Thomas. Uh, Their father was an ardent anti-slavery advocate in the days before abolitionism and all that other stuff. Well, when South Carolina ends up voting to secede from the Union, Drayton disavows South Carolina as his place of residence, sells his home, and moves the family to Philadelphia. From the beginning of the time that the South had voted to secede and knew it was forming uh, a military force, and you had a lot of people who were in the federal army at that time resigned their federal commissions and accepted commissions in the Confederate army, Thomas Drayton tried to persuade his brother, Percival, who had been an attendee at Annapolis and was a naval officer, tried to... uh, persuade his brother Percival to to come over to the other side. And Percival continually resisted. And the last time that the two men saw each other was a family dinner in Philadelphia in March of 1861. And at the end of the dinner, Thomas made his last pitch to Percival to come over. Percival, you know, rejected Thomas's proposal. The two men wished each other well. They shook hands and left. Uh, never never saw each other again. And Percival goes on to be a commander of one of the gunboats in the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron Flotilla that enters Port Royal Sound the morning of November 7th and starts to bombard the two forts, one of which his brother is commanding at the time. Thomas will go on, obviously um, defeated in the war, loses the land to confiscation after the war. And until 1868, until the last federal troops leave, the Union Army claims occupation of Hilton Head Island. So all of the families that had been sold land or granted land by the government on Hilton Head were protected until late in 1868 from any efforts at reclamation. Well, what happened after Lincoln was assassinated is that Andrew Johnson takes over. And obviously, he's the one who immediately puts in in the pro, in process several measures by executive order to permit former Confederate landowners and slave owners to reclaim their land if they can pay the back taxes and if they'll swear an oath of allegiance to the United States. And 
most of the land that was awarded was not necessarily the land on Hilton Head, but some of the other sea islands. Uh, the people of Edisto Island were largely successful in holding on to their lands during the war because of the activities of the two men who were instrumental in the Freedmen's Bureau, one of which was Oliver Otis Howard, the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, but the other being uh, General Rufus Saxton, Rufus Saxton, who had been here at the same time Hunter was as the military governor of the Department of the South with the responsibility of training and skilling the formerly enslaved people for lives and freedom. Saxton had been a staunch defender of the right of the blacks to hold the land that they had been granted and deeded by the federal government before any efforts to reclaim their land. And Howard joined the fight on Saxton's side, and they basically rejected and ignored Johnson's orders to let reclamation begin on that land. So it wasn't really until after 1868 that any attempts to reclaim land on Hilton Head were made by former owners. And in most cases, those owners didn't have uh, the wherewithal to pay the back taxes. The Draytons were one family who did. Uh, The Baynards also were a family who did. But what happened with the Draytons was that they purchased most of the land back that had been their plantation and were unable to use it profitably and ended up selling it. Uh, not long after they had reclaimed it, uh, mostly to freedmen or northern land speculators who were buying up a lot of land here on the island. That's really what happened um, to that area, and that's who the Draytons were and what their involvement was here uh, in the Civil War. Actually, Thomas Drayton was the owner of Fishall Plantation as well, and that was the land that Mitchell had sighted across the marsh that he set aside for the town of Mitchellville. Drayton had come into the land ownership through marrying one of the daughters of uh, William Pope, because that was land owned by Pope prior to the Draytons uh, owning that property. You mentioned earlier in the podcast about the Sea Island hurricane that happened in August of 1893. It was a very catastrophic event for the area and ended the town for good. What what happened with that whole situation? Uh, that hurricane was the beginning of a spate of six hurricanes that hit Hilton Head Island in a five-year period. And uh, the storm the storm came in August of 1893. You know, there were warnings by the National Weather Bureau. Believe it or not, there was a weather bureau in those days. And uh, it had warned of the approach of the storm uh, 72 hours before it actually hit. But none of the islanders here, very few, if any, had the means to know about the approach of the storm, which also didn't give them an opportunity to prepare. And when that storm hit, it was a category four, five hurricane, and it hit the island directly, not at high tide, but near high tide, ended up producing a storm surge over 16 feet on Hilton Head Island and left most parts of Hilton Head Island under up to 20 feet of water before the storm surge receded from the island. It killed, uh, the hurricane killed about 3,000 people between Charleston and Savannah along the coast, 2,000 of them in the Port Royal Sound area alone. 
I mean, it was really a gruesome time, a gruesome spectacle. Um, you know, for weeks afterward, for actually six weeks afterward, bodies were floating in the marshes and in the boatways among the marsh grass. Clumps of corpses would wash up on shore. Most of the bodies that washed up were not, never identified. Following the storm, uh, the moisture from the storm and the hot September weather brought a surge in malaria. And so there was plenty of disease on the island. Uh, the outside world didn't really hear of what had happened on Hilton Head for two months after the hurricane had hit. So the humanitarian crisis that was evolving, you know, was unknown by people who could have come to its aid. Finally, and actually ironically in a way, the American Red Cross was called into the act. And it was called in by Governor Ben Tillman. Uh, Pitchfork Tillman was his nickname. He was a essentially a, a white supremacist who uh, had absolutely no regard for Beaufort County at the time because it was the seat of the Republican Party. And it was also a place that had a population of over 85 percent blacks at the time. But because of the crisis that had developed here, he personally called Clara Barton, who he knew. Uh, had spent some time here during the Civil War and requested that she bring the Red Cross to aid the relief effort down here in, in Hilton Head and the Port Royal Sound. Clara Barton herself came down uh, for a couple of months. She appointed a man named Dr. McDonald to supervise the relief effort on, on Hilton Head. And Dr. McDonald and his wife, for over six months, supervised the delivery of goods and materials uh, to the islanders to help them recover. During that time, uh, salt water sat in pools of water on most of the former cotton and potato fields. And 37 miles of ditches had to be dug so that the water standing on the fields could drain into the nearby marshes. And the boats that had provided sustenance for a lot of the families on the island were mostly washed away to the sea. And boats were their main means of connection with the mainland. And so this, this island, you know, went into a period of very serious decline. But gradually, you know, the, the fields were farmable again. Uh, the people restored their homes. Um, a million boards of lumber were delivered to Hilton Head Island during that relief effort, for instance. Uh, lots of tools were provided for the people in field um, uh, cultivation implements were also provided, as well as food. I mean, food was delivered here for over eight months. So um, the only fresh water supplies that Hilton had had were uh, limited to really um, two wells and then some relatively scanty spring sources that were inadequate really for the numbers in need. So there was this massive effort that took place here from August of 1893 on. And to add insult to injury, another hurricane kind of came to Hilton Head. Wasn't a direct hit, was nowhere near as serious, but it brought a lot of rain and a lot of flooding. And the blessing from that storm in 1893, later in 1893, I think it was November, uh, was that it that it uh, provided the freshwater bath for the fields to help dissipate the lingering salt from the seawater. 
So that helped in the recovery of the island later on. But that was a, a brutal storm. Um, it was um, it, it just killed a lot of people. I mean, people lashed themselves to the trunks and limbs of live oaks, for instance, to try to survive. If they couldn't do that, they tried to hide in ditches or were blown to their deaths by the winds. And Mitchellville was buried by sand. In fact, wasn't too long ago that the archaeology crew that Katie Sieber is heading from the State University of New York in Binghamton ended up unearthing a hearth from Mitchellville under about three feet of sand, I believe, that had been brought in, obviously, during either that hurricane or a subsequent hurricane, not to be sure. It just goes to show the resilience of people because it didn't take horribly long for the island to uh, recover over a period of time and get those fields going and once again prosper. Absolutely, Jay. And unfortunately, I mean, you know, the years from about 1900 to the 1950s were pretty good, allowed recovery. And then in the 50s, a couple of hurricanes came, uh, didn't wipe out Hilton Head per se. Hurricane Hazel was one of them, a, a huge storm. And, you know, we've been, we were lucky for a long stretch of time, almost 60 years until Matthew came. But yeah, it allowed the recovery and the prosperity to redevelop for those people. And the economy of, on Hilton Head for the Native Islanders was, you know, really very adequate. Uh, they lived comfortably here uh, all of those years when this was just a remote outpost, a devoid of contact with the mainstream, for sure. Rich, it's an absolutely fascinating and amazing story. I thank you so much for taking us on this journey of the story of Mitchellville and what impact it had uh, on the country and on Hilton Head Island. Yeah, Jay, and I mean, you know, it all happens before emancipation. So, you know, we call Mitchellville the birthplace of freedom for formerly enslaved African Americans. And the fact that it's self-sustained under its own governance, you know, makes it the first fully self-governed freedmen's community in the United States. Uh, it foreshadowed what was to come. And what was to come was really all part of what led to the holiday of Juneteenth. And although Formerly enslaved people were legally free by executive order as of January 1st, 1863. Full legal emancipation under the law did not occur until December of 1865, which was after the federal enforcement of the 13th Amendment that occurred on June 19th, 1865 on Galveston Island, Texas when the last enslaved people in the state of Texas were freed by federal troops. And that marked the actual physical end of slavery in the, in the United States. But, you know, it wasn't until the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December that legal freedom was really established. So it's been a long road, you know, to freedom for the African-Americans from the shores of Africa to Mitchellville, to the 13th Amendment, to the Civil Rights Acts in the 1960s. And, you know, some would still argue whether full equality under the law has truly been achieved. Um, it's an evolving story for sure, and one that Hilton Head just has an amazing role in. And every visitor to this island 
every resident of this island should know about the story of Mitchellville, the courage of the people of Mitchellville, too, who were willing to take a shot at living apart from protection of the fort and the soldiers in the forts. Uh, and then they succeeded in great fashion, obviously, in the experiment part of the Port Royal experiment and proved really at the time that Lincoln was working on the final drafts of the Emancipation Proclamation, proved that yes, black people are educable and they can self-sustain in a free society if given the opportunity. And that was the, uh, that was the Port Royal experiment that the town of Mitchellville was a major initiative in. It is a fabulous story. Thank you for, for giving me an opportunity to tell it. Obviously, that's something I love to do. It's definitely one of your biggest passions is Mitchellville. Yes, it is. Rich, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jay. Look forward to the next. 